Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Our text today, Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we had looked at the previous verses where Paul is using Christ as the prime example in order to give us assurance, give us an understanding of our new life in Him, that because He died and rose again, so we have died to the old man and now we live in the newness of life. This whole section here is dealing with sanctification as we've been talking about uh, for the past couple of weeks. This is us being conformed to the image of Christ. It is the old man dying. He's dead. He's gone. And now we are living in the newness of life that has been brought to us by the Holy Spirit of God who has changed our hearts, taken out our heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, given us a new desires, given us a new mind, a new will that we desire to do the things of God. And so in order to deal with the question of what then occurs with our sin, because he has spent five and a half chapters dealing with justification by faith, now he is addressing our sin. What happens with our sin? How do we overcome our sin? How do we regard ourselves now? as being justified before God, and this is this whole section here dealing with sanctification. Do we continue in sin? No, may it never be. You have died to sin. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Him in the newness of life. And so in our text last week, we read where the apostle had said, Now if we have died with Christ, this is verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Now if... Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he now lives, he lives to God. So the apostle is using Christ as the example. Your sanctification is sure. Your sanctification is being uh, done in you by the Spirit of God. And it's likened to the life and the death of Christ. Not to the same extent, by all means, there's always the difference between the Creator, Christ Himself, His redemptive work, all of that versus us. But He does use Him as an example in order to assure us of what is occurring in our life and what has occurred in our life. If we believe that we have died with Christ, the old man, the old nature is dead, and we should understand that that is indeed the case. You are not one person with two natures. You do not have a sinful nature and you do not have a godly nature. The sinful nature is gone. It's dead. It's, it's no more. And as we talked about, the dominion of sin has been broken. And that's also going to come up in our text today. And now we live with Christ. This is being conformed to the image of Christ, the moral character of Christ, living unto godliness and holiness. And it is assured. Christ was raised from the dead. He died once to sin. And now he is raised from the dead, and now he lives a life unto the honor of the Father. And that is indeed what has occurred with us. We have died to sin once, in the sense that the dominion of sin is broken. It's not to be broken again. It's already been broken. Sin is no longer master over you. He doesn't take hold of you again, and you have to break his dominion once more. It's done. 
And now you live for the honor of the Father. And he uses that to set the foundation, all of that doctrine to set the foundation, to give us the first exhortation in the book of Romans, which occurs in verse 11, when he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Give careful thinking to everything that I have said thus far about what Christ has brought about for you, the new life that you have in him. Your justification, everything, and in light of all of this, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now, in our text today, he's going to elaborate further on that. We have more exhortations that are going to be given to us, but it's in light of what Christ has accomplished. It's in light of what Paul has previously said about our new life in him, our being sanctified, being set apart as holy, all of that. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And how exactly does that work within our lives? What influence does having that understanding and having that command, how then do we carry it out? Well, we carry it out by what Paul tells us, verses 12 to 14, and the implication of what he is saying to us in verses 12 to 14 that we're going over today is that in Christ, by the Spirit of God, since we understand the reality of sin, is the dominion of sin is broken, you're no longer under its mastery. In light of that, the Spirit of God has given us the power then to resist sin, to overcome it. You have been granted this power by the Spirit of God to resist the temptations, to resist sin, to overcome it. To no longer live as if you're under its dominion, but recognizing that you have a new master who is the king of righteousness, who then leads you into all righteousness. The command is given to us to do something. And the implication is that we can carry out what is the, the, the command that is being given to us. We don't look at this command and say, well, I can't do that. If you are of Christ and you have the Spirit of God in you, you can do it by His power. And that's what Paul is telling us. So you've been granted this power to overcome sin. You have been prepared and equipped in order to, to have this kind of warfare with, your, with the rudiments of the old self. And you're to rely on the great gracious provision of Christ in order to carry it all out. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And I pray that it would indeed be an encouragement to our hearts as we recognize once again who we are now in Christ versus who we were. So if you would, and you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse 12. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the reminder that it gives us once more of what you have enabled us to do by the spirit that you have granted to us. Thank you for his continued presence with us. That Daily he shapes us and molds us to be all that you desire. And that his work in us is grounded in the great work of Christ 
and purchasing our redemption, bringing us into the family of God. Thank you so much for all the work that you do on our behalf. We pray as we work our way through this passage that the Spirit of God would truly do a mighty work within us, strengthening our hearts, giving us assurance, giving us peace, comforting us, and reminding us of who we are now in your Son. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word, may it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the Apostle Paul gives us our first exhortation in verse 11 of the book of Romans. To consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the therefore in verse 12. More to say. But the very fact that he gives us this particular command is, is evidence that we can carry this out. Sometimes we look at sin in our life and we feel so defeated before we ever strive to, to get away from it. Strive to overcome it. We feel so defeated. Because perhaps it's a sin that has been uh, haunting us for so many years or so long of a time. And I'll never get over this. I'll never be able to overcome. Well, what Paul is saying here is that, yes, you can. And you can by the Spirit of God. Listen to this command he gives. This power truly has been granted to the people of God. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And this is meant to encourage his readers, to, to stimulate his readers, to give, to give attention to this and, and, and to give all that they can in order to carry this out. This is how the work of Christ is ineffected in us. We are able to carry these things out. This is the result of the new life from God and, and its power to resist sin and, and its power to overcome it. He says, don't let yourself, the totality of who you are, your mind, your, your will, and your affections, this particular mortal body. He says, do not allow it to be the recipient of sin's reign. This idea of reign is, is like a kingly rule. Do not let sin reign over you as king. Why? Why, why do you not let it reign over you as king? Because it's... What we've been learning is that this, the, the mastery of sin, the, the dominion of sin, the kingship of sin, you could say is, it's being personified here. He's been dethroned. He's been cast down. You have a new master now. The old master is the one who continually led you further and further into sin. And perhaps when you did feel helpless of particular things in your life. I can't stop doing this or whatever. You were led into further rebellion, further wickedness. And sin is what indeed characterized your life until, until Christ came into your life. Something happened. There was a transformation. That's the very thing that we've been talking about for the past number of weeks. This isn't a situation in which you just came to the Christian faith because you like the particular views of the Christian faith or you like the morality of the Christian faith. Something happened to you. You changed. You were transformed. And when you were transformed, you were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom 
of God's beloved Son. You have a new master. No longer are you under sin's dominion. Whereas you could only sin. But now being united to the sovereign king of righteousness. Your life, the totality of who you are has been dramatically transformed. You're not who you once were. And now you are granted the ability to pursue a life of righteousness. And so he gives that command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You've been born, you've been born again. You have a new pattern. Uh, you have one that your life is now patterned after, which is the Spirit of God. We are being aligned with the moral character of Christ by the Holy Spirit now that we have been born again. No longer to do the things that we did. No longer to indulge in the things that we did. But to now live unto the Lord and live in a way that is honoring to Him. And you have the ability to do it. Not in yourself, but in the Lord. So do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That you obey its lust. That idea is to render submissive acceptance. To be submissive to those irregular and impure desires. Do not let this happen, he says. Well, how can I not let it happen? In and of myself, I can't. In and of yourself, you can't. But that's the point. That's what Paul is saying. In him, you can. But we don't think that way. Again, we think... This is something that I've contended with. This is something that I've just dealt with all of my life. I'm never going to get over it. And we're again, we're already defeated before we ever try. But what Paul is saying here is, yes, you can by the Spirit of God. Does that mean you're going to do it perfectly? No, we're not saying that. But it is something that you can overcome. It is something that you can gradually suppress and live unto the Lord and not live in, in, in the deadness of your old life. So do not allow it to reign in your mortal body. Don't, do not allow sin to be king over you because it's not. So that you obey, be submissive to, be compliant with its desires, its impure desires. <clears throat> You've been born of another. And that is the Spirit of God. You're not who you once were again when you are born from above you are born anew the lord has changed you made you into a new creature the old things have passed away new things have come you're a new creature in christ that is who you are the old man the sinful man the one who was in rebellion against the lord that was the old man that's not who you are now if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you that is not who you are. You have the ability then to overcome this. Because God has empowered you to do so by His Spirit. Think of this. Does it even make any sense that if you have the Holy Spirit, the one who is perfect in every way, who dwells within you, who is to lead you and to guide you, to leave you in sin? Does that even make any sense? You're never going to overcome this. You're always going to struggle with this. You're always going to be in this particular situation, this, this act of rebellion. It's always going to be something you contend with. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Does that even make sense? 
I have God living in me, and he can't empower me to overcome this, yet he tells me I should? That doesn't make any sense. You have the righteous one living in you, dwelling in you who has changed you. Yes, he has delivered you from sin's mastery, from its dominion, from the darkness that you were once in. And now he is gradually, yes, it is a gradual thing, but it is something that will occur, that is occurring, to be changed, to suppress the old man, to suppress the unrighteous rudiments of who we once were, and to live unto the Lord. Think of all the commands that are in Scripture, to walk worthy of Christ, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, to walk worthy, etc., Walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of this kind of language. Why would the language be there if we can't do it? You can't do it. Not in yourself. That's why you must rely on the Lord to do what you cannot. But you have him in you and you have that power in you to carry those things out. What was it? I think it was Augustine who prayed the prayer, uh, Lord, command what thou would and grant what thou dost command. And that's what the Lord does. He grants what he commands. And he does so by the Spirit of God. He has empowered us to do so and he has equipped us for this kind of warfare. He says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Do not go presenting the members of your body, he says. Any part of your body, your hands, your, your eyes, your mouth is the idea, as instruments of unrighteousness. Some of your translations may say tools. The idea is weapons. That's a common word. Do not go on presenting. This, this is the idea of a continued action of devoting yourself, devoting any part of your body to sin's influence or control. Do not offer yourself to sin in this kind of a way as instruments, as weapons of unrighteousness. Weapons of injustice, weapons of wrongs, weapons of deceitfulness, of iniquity, of falsehood. Do not go on presenting any member of your body. Do not devote your eyes, your mouth, your actions to wronging others. You've had the power to do this. You've been granted this power. So this is what you do. You resist the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, of course, this is well known to us. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. Again, another command to carry out something that we automatically think, how do I do that? Or we automatically think, I'm just not far long enough to do that. Well, Paul says that you are. Paul, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to pen these words, implies that you are. You are able to do this. And now, this is something to point out. We can come up with a number of examples as to what does this mean? Not to go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. We can look at a number of different sins and we can say, okay, that's probably in view there. I shouldn't be bad-mouthing others. I shouldn't be backbiting. I shouldn't be gossiping. I shouldn't be causing others pain or giving acceptance to sin and wickedness. I shouldn't be, be saying terrible things to others. I shouldn't be looking at things I shouldn't. I shouldn't be 
harming others in, in a, any particular way. And all those things are very true. And those are the easy things to pinpoint and say, yeah, we shouldn't be doing these things. So don't offer yourself up to that control and that influence. But that's not all. I want you to think of this. This is the Apostle Paul who is penning these words. The Apostle Paul who most likely, uh, in all likelihood, especially when you're looking at Romans 1 that we've been through, was not doing any of those things that were listed in Romans 1, the sexual immoralities and all of that of the Gentiles. But Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And the very harm that he was doing is also what's implied here. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, as weapons of unrighteousness. What were the things that the Pharisees were doing in the time of our Lord? Because they were committing these very things too. Though they weren't committing the blatant sins that we would all, perhaps our minds would automatically go to, of saying things we shouldn't and doing things that we shouldn't, viewing things that we shouldn't. But there were other things here that perhaps uh, the Apostle Paul himself endured and committed. I want you to think back to something. During the ministry of our Lord, the very things that he was indicting the religious leaders for, their unrighteousness, was probably not any of the things that we were just mentioning of our common sins, if you would. As Jesus said, they were the ones who were tying up heavy burdens and placing them on people's shoulders. They were the ones who were experts at setting aside the commandment of God for their traditions. They were the ones who were invalidating the word of God by their traditions. There is something else that we have to be very, very careful of so that we also do not offer ourselves up or any part of ourselves to be used as weapons of unrighteousness, and it's the very things that the religious leaders were committing. The very things that we find within the churches today. I grew up in very legalistic churches, and perhaps you did too. And what were the things that were the most emphasized in those types of churches? Well, they could vary, you know, depending on what kind of church that you grew up in or were part of. It could be the type of hairstyles that you have. It could be the kind of clothes that you wear to church, what men should wear, what women should wear, the kind of Bible that you had, the kind of music you listen to, whether or not you drink alcohol. I mean, on and on and on you could go. And the, those particular things end up being the most emphasized within churches that are more legalistic. And these have nothing to do with what the Word of God says as to how we should conduct ourselves, and yet they're the very things that are emphasized more so than anything. I had a relative that would often brag about his wife and his daughter and would say, yeah, you know, you will never see them wearing pants to the church because the Bible says that a woman shouldn't dress like a man and a man shouldn't dress like a woman. And I think to myself, so you're okay with her wearing pants six other days of the week and looking like a man according to your view, but it just happens to be on this particular day that you have a problem with it. You have 
you have a lot of emphasis on these particular things because these particular things are matters of conscience, matters of conviction, preferences, and they end up becoming the standard for the people of God in those churches. It's like, how does that happen? R.C. Sproul, probably the greatest theologian of our day, he had a sermon that was entitled, The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. And that particular sermon struck, struck right at the heart of what we were actually having to deal with a couple years back. Because when it, what his emphasis was is that when your personal convictions, your matters of conscience, then become the standard for everybody else, that is the gauge that you use to determine whether or not someone is living unto the Lord or they're not. It's not the word of God anymore. Now it's your standard. And how does that then be put into the churches? And what Dr. Sproul was talking about is, is that when you have people with personal convictions like that who get into positions of leadership in the church, then it ends up spreading to everybody. And that becomes the standard. That's exactly what happened with the, the religious leaders of our Lord's Day. Their personal convictions and matters of conscience become the standard for everyone else. We had a guy not too long ago who had uh, written into our church, emailed our church. I didn't even respond. I was very curious. I, I, I thought, do I need to respond to this? I'm just going to let it go. But it just, it, it struck me, because here's this guy who knows nothing about us, I think maybe listened to some sermons online, something like that, and in his email, he was emailing to ask, would you all be willing to implement this and this other particular thing into the liturgy of your church? He says, I'm sure you all have a lot of things right, but would you all be willing to do this? I'm looking for a good church. And I'm thinking to myself, this really isn't the right way to do this. You're just going to ride into a church and say, this is how I need things to be. And we're just going to mold into that. I didn't even respond back. I just I kind of let it go. But that is a prime example of how you have an idea of personal conviction or preference that then should be the standard for everybody. And it's not. What happens when we do that? If we as leaders of the church was to impose upon you our standard of what we think should be right, our preferences, our matters of conscience, our convictions, we would be doing this very thing here. We would be presenting ourselves as instruments, as weapons of unrighteousness to you. We would be doing an injustice to you because we would be putting on you a yoke of bondage that was never meant for you to have. Very similar uh, words there uh, that the apostles use that really help us out. At the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when they're trying to figure out what they do with the, the Gentiles, 
whether or not it is necessary to circumcise them and for them to observe the law of Moses, etc., uh, dietary laws, all that, uh, and then their traditions. In verse 10, Peter says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And that's what we would be doing. We would be placing a burden upon you that you were never meant to bear. Why? Because we prefer things this way. This is our conviction. This is our matter of conscience. We would be doing a great injustice to you. But the standard of how we ought to be and how we ought to do is the word of God and the word of God alone. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So we must be very careful, not only as leaders of the church, not to impose upon you legalistic ideas and standards that will only cause you to be provoked to anger, perhaps, or to be irritated, or to cause you to lose peace in Christ because this is how we think things ought to be. It is, it is a matter of doing what is written and only doing what is written. That is how we should be to you and you to be to each other. That we do not use ourselves as weapons of injustice towards one another because of matters of conscience and preference. So this is the other thing that we must be very cautious of. We hold each other accountable to what is written and what is written only. And by doing so, then we actually promote within one another what is good and right before the Lord. So we do not go on presenting the members of our bodies as instrument of unrighteousness, but then you have the contrast. You have him saying, but, and this is that, that word again, this is that, that word Allah, this is that very strong contrasting word. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. Now, interestingly, um, in the first portion of this verse, he says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body. And that is in the, the active mood there. This idea is an ongoing thing. Uh, presently. But when he says in the contrast, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, he's using a different tense now. He's not using the active indicative mood. He actually uses what's referred to as an aorist. And an aorist is, is, is in the past. It's not like, not like continually in the past is the imperfect tense in the Greek, but it's just, it's in the past. And some may refer to it as the simple past. I could say uh, earlier on today, I sat in that chair. It happened in the past. It happened earlier. But this is the tense that he uses here. He says, but present yourselves to God. And he's almost taking them back once again to the reality of who they became in Christ. Don't go on in this continued manner presenting yourselves to sin and offering yourself to sin. But present yourselves in the manner in which you were first given to the Lord 
when it occurred as instruments of righteousness. This is, again, presenting to them the reality of who they are now since their conversion, since the Lord regenerated their hearts. He doesn't say in the first portion to present your members. He says, present yourselves, who you are, the real you, the one who has now been regenerated by the Spirit of God, the identical one that is you, the real, the real you. He says, present yourselves to God, not to sin in general, not to practice, not to action, at least not right here yet, but you're presenting yourself to a specific one. It's not just a matter of saying you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you need to refrain from this, but it's also taking further action. I'm not going to offer myself to sin. I'm going to offer myself to another, which is God. I'm not just trying to stop doing something, but I'm trying to get something else going in my life. I'm going to offer myself to the righteous one. I'm going to present myself to God. That's what he's saying to you. Present yourselves to God, the one whom God had made you when he had first regenerated you, when you were first converted You are offering yourself to the one who saved you. As those alive from the dead. What's he he meaning there? You've been made alive in Christ, right? There are many passages that, that, that say those very words. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We've been buried with him in baptism. We've been raised with him in the newness of life. All of that language that is given. And so when he says again, present yourselves as those alive from the dead. Don't live as you once did. Don't live as if you're dead, as if you're still dead in sin, because you're not. That's the whole reality. It's a very simple thing. Don't live that way because that's not who you are. You are to live now to the one who made you alive, who has given you a new direction in life. You don't live as though you were never transformed, as though you're still dead, but now you're living alive to God. Alive to the true knowledge of God, alive to carry out his will and his commands to know them. To view the world now through the lens of the scripture, which includes viewing yourself now as one who has been born again. To know who you are now in Christ. As the scripture tells us later, the Apostle Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You're living now in the newness of that life, with that new understanding of things, with the the mind of Christ and with the new affections that the Spirit has wrought within us and the new desires that He has given to us to carry out the very will of God, the very plan of God, what God commands of us to do those things that are good, right, and acceptable. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As instruments of justice, of doing right, 
dealing fairly with one another, doing right by one another. Be a weapon for good. Be a weapon in the hand of the Lord. Something honorable, carrying out the things that are honorable. To live boldly before the Lord now, recognizing who you are. I'm alive to the Lord because of the work he did in me. I can overcome sin by the spirit of God he has granted in me. The spirit has changed me, made me anew, and now I can live boldly before the Lord. I can live confidently knowing that I have peace with God and that there are no more consequences uh, that there rather there's no more condemnation i can live as one who is now more than conqueror more than a conqueror through him who loved me and that is with you the scripture affirms that to us does it not we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and we can live in that kind of way and we can do so because he elaborates in verse 14 of god's gracious provision he says, for sin shall not be master over you. And he's given the explanation of what he just said in verse 13. Sin is not master over you. And this Greek word is um, actually from the same root word as kurios, which means Lord. It's translated Lord. And this word here is meaning to be lord, lorded over. To exercise control over another, to rule as Lord. And he is saying, for sin is not to lord over you. It's not to rule over you. It's not to exercise authority over you. How is that? Yeah, by everything that he has said up to this point, a lot of this is just repetitive. It's just reminding you once again. Sin is not master over you because the dominion has been broken. It's not master over you because you have a new master. You have a new king. You have a new way of life. One theologian says this, Romans 6, 1-11 has established Jesus' supremacy over sin and death. It has asserted believers' union with him in his death and the resurrection and life. On that basis, Paul can command believers to defy what seems inevitable, sin. It does not reign over the believer. Rather, Christ reigns. And he goes on to say this. Because of our true union with Christ, sin shall not and cannot dominate us any longer. Sin shall not and cannot dominate us any longer but the question is is do we still view ourselves under the dominion of sin that's the problem now this isn't this isn't a situation in which we have positive thinking this isn't a charismatic idea that is going on here but it is understanding what the scripture is telling us about now who we are, who you are. It is giving us the reality of our new life now, no longer dominated by sin. 
and wickedness and rebellion. And at times our thinking does our thinking absolutely can affect us. If we think that we're still sinners before God and God is just waiting to drop the hammer on us, then we're not appreciating what Christ has brought about for us and bringing us into the family of God to now be regarded as sons and daughters of the King and to be regarded as saints. Saints who have been delivered from the domain of darkness. Because if you're in Christ, that's who you are. Again, we still we recognize very clearly that sanctification is not completed in this life. We understand that. But we also understand that we are not the old man. We still contend with the rudiments of the old man, as the 1689 says. But we are not who we once were. We are a new creation, a new creature. And here's what he says. As what he said a number of times already. Sin is not Lord over you. And then another explanation, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is one of those passages that get thrown, gets thrown around a lot, at least with the churches that I grew up in. And this is one that, um, if, you've, if you've heard of antinomians, uh, this is a passage that is used by them to say that there really is no standard. We don't have to carry out any uh, obedience to the Lord because now we're under grace. We're not under law. You have the law that was given in the Old Testament and they had to do these things and it was for their salvation. But now we're under grace and we have no standard. That's not at all what he's referring to there. Paul has already said that the law is good. The law is holy. We establish the law. He's already said those things. But there is a difference in the relationship of the believer to the law for those that are in Christ versus those that are not. J.V. Fesco says, when Paul says that we are no longer under law but under grace, this is another way of saying that we are no longer united to Adam and thereby subject to the curse of the law. We are united to Christ and enjoy the fruits and benefits of God's grace in our redemption. William Hendrickson, he says... The law is able to do many things. It commands, demands, rebukes, condemns, restrains, even points away from itself to another. There is, however, one thing the law can never do. It cannot save. End quote. So our relationship to the law before Christ was we look to the law. The law condemns us. The law has no salvific elements to it. It only shows us that we're sinners before God. And yet you have his audience at one particular time who thought just because they had the law and they were striving to carry out the things of the law that they were justified before God or they had God's favor. And his whole point of uh, five chapters, five and a half chapters, has been that no one is saved by the works of the law. You're not righteous before God simply by having it. You are in Adam, and Adam is your representative. And if Adam is your representative, you stand condemned. You need a new representative. The new representative head now is Christ. And so he's just he's elaborating further on the things that we've already been over. We're not under the law. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We're not under the curse of the law any longer. The apostle says in Romans chapter 8, these wonderful words, beginning in verse 1, 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Whereas we were under the curse of the law at one time because we stood condemned. In Christ, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And there's a change of relationship now. There is a way in which now because of what Christ has accomplished for us, the law is no longer uh, an enemy to the people of God. Because we recognize that the law is good. The law is holy because it's the expression of the holiness of God. We recognize too that as we're talking about being conformed to the image of Christ and we're talking about sanctification, when you think about what it is that Christ had done within his life, what was he doing? He was actively fulfilling the law of God to its perfection, right? Right? And then we have the reality of who we are now. We're being conformed to his image. So what are we being conformed to? We're being conformed to the moral aspects of the law itself. Because the law is good and the law is holy. And so now the law is no longer something that condemns us. But now it's our guide to walk us through life, as Luther said. J.B. Fesco again, he says, Reformed theologians have noted that believers no longer stand in relation to the law as a covenant of works, that which requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Instead, once Christ redeems, justifies, and sanctifies a person, he delivers him from the law as a covenant. Instead, it becomes a rule for life, that which informs the believer of what the Lord desires of his people, The law is no longer an enemy, but a friend. For you are not under the curse of the law any longer. But now you're under grace. And this word that's being used here is, is, as one theologian had pointed out, is really emphasizing now you're under God's gracious plan or God's gracious provision. Is how the word is being used. An example of that is in Hebrews chapter 2. Same way it's used here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The scripture says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. By the gracious provision of God, by the gracious plan of God, he might taste death for everyone is, is the idea that's being carried there. Sin is not your master any longer. You're no longer under the curse of the law. You've been equipped then to overcome sin and to understand who you are now in the newness of the life that you've been granted and that you can resist sin and not let it reign over you. And how is it that you can do all of that? Because you're under God's gracious provision in Christ. And that's the emphasis. Because Christ has lived for you. Christ has died for you. Christ has raised up to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer all of his enemies, that we might walk in in the newness of life in that victory as well, being made anew each day by the Spirit of God who is within us, applying the benefits of what Christ has done to us. And these benefits come to us by faith alone. 
not by the works of the law. We do the things of the law not for salvation, but because of it. Because we know it's good. And we know it's right. Because of his gracious provision in Christ. There's a change of relationship now. From the believer to the law as those who are unregenerate to the law. So he is really emphasizing to us once again who we are now in Christ. And the things that we are able then to do in Christ by the Spirit of God. You do not have to live the defeated life that you will never overcome something in your life, a temptation or a sin. There should be a progression and there can be a progression. It's not in your own doing, but it's in the working of the Lord in you. But you, that's why we pray and we ask the Lord to continually work within us and to continually help us to overcome it because only by His power can we. And that's where we also get very defeated too because we strive in our own power to do something and we fail. But if we recognize that the Spirit of God is the one who conforms us, it's the Spirit of God in us who is changing us daily, that sanctification is a monergistic work of God, then that gives us an even more, uh, even more hope and even more peace as we live each day. This blessing has come to you because you are now in Christ. And because you are in Him, He didn't leave you in your sin, but now he's de- He has delivered you from its mastery, and He is gradually delivering you from the rudiments of the old man. You're not who you once were. You're not a sinner in rebellion against the Lord. Now you're a son and daughter of the King. That's who you are. And so what Paul says then, don't live as if you're still dead in sin. Don't live as if sin is still your master and your king. If we have a new king, you have a new master. You've been empowered to carry out a new life. And so what do we do then? For each one of us, we have various things in our own lives. We pray. We ask the Lord for help. We ask the Lord for guidance. We pray that He continually works with us. We immerse ourselves within the Scripture to continually feed our souls with that which is good that we're offering ourselves to God and not to sin. Because that's something else that we must do. If we are to offer ourselves to God, what then does that encompass? What does that mean? That, of course, our lives are being lined up to be that which the Lord desires of us. That everything that we're doing or everything that we're restraining from is, or we're trying to restrain from is in view of what God has done. And we want to live for the Lord, but we also have to immerse ourselves in knowing Him even more so. Of growing in our knowledge of Him. Growing in, in our relationship with, with the true and the living God. And that comes through His Word. That comes of learning of Him, of, of, of learning of who He is, learning everything that we can. Because the more we learn, the more the Spirit works in conjunction with the Word that He inspired to change us. The Spirit does not work independent of His Word. So we are offering ourselves to God to learn of Him, to grow in our knowledge of Him, to grow in our love for Him, our devotion to Him. And all that occurs by the Spirit of God working in us with the Word of God. So we pray, we study, we immerse ourselves in the Scripture And we rely on the Lord to do what we cannot. But be hopeful. 
be hopeful. You may struggle with it now, but one day you'll do this right. And we'll be able to do it because of the Spirit of God in us. Let us live in view of that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And Father, we just we ask that you would continually help us every day. We don't want to just say these words as if they're meaningless and empty. We truly mean this. We truly desire to be all that you desire in us. We have some, of course, that, that are further along than others. We want to be on this journey together. We want to be patient with one another, loving with one another, recognizing where we once were as well. We want to be an encouragement to each other and to promote in us, uh, to, to cultivate in us an even greater dependence and reliance on the Spirit of God. Work within us. Father, every day to shape us and mold us. Work within us to be a church that is honoring to you, glorifying to you, a church that loves one another and promotes godliness in one another, but does so by the standard of the Scripture. For that's where true godliness is. Let us not use the Scripture as a weapon of unrighteousness, a weapon of injustice against one another, against unbelievers, let us use it rightly, wield it rightly, that you would be honored and not have reproach brought upon you. Thank you, Father, for this reality of who we are. You brought us up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set our feet on the rock, and established our goings. You gave us a new path. And we thank you for Christ, because of him, his life, and his death, his resurrection, his continued work. We are privileged to walk in the newness of life by faith alone. Thank you for all that he did. Father, we pray that you be glorified in us. Father, that, that our love for you and our devotion to you will continually grow. For we do love you imperfectly, but we look forward to the day in which we will love you rightly, that we will worship you rightly, that we will give you thanks rightly in the perfection of of, of this new life that you will have for us after this. Father, be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Everyone would.